I think, you know, when people say, what do I do? My answer always is do something, you know, anything. Pick, pick one thing, pick one cause, one mission. It doesn't matter. It can be plastic. It could be garbage. It could be wildlife health. It could be human health. It could be orphan children, you know, atmospheric pollution, whatever it is, you know, whatever theme that you, that you can influence that makes the world a better place, do something, anything. Welcome to The Possibilists. The Possibilists is a podcast collaboration between the Smithsonian Earth Optimism and Pelicanus. The Smithsonian Conservation Commons Earth Optimist Initiative is changing the conservation narrative from one that focuses on problems and perils to highlighting impactful solutions. By celebrating what's working in conservation, they seek to inspire action and move global community from a sense of loss to one of hope and finding solutions to save our planet. Pelicanus is a conservation-based collective and continuous wonder of the healing and encouragement that is possible on this planet and the people making it happen. We are committed to telling these stories and demonstrating optimism through science. Now in this partnership, we spotlight conservationists working with a possibilistic attitude for solution-based efforts to tackle the world's critical environmental struggles. We're attempting to reframe the narrative around conservation to show that conservation successes are possible through changes in attitude and implementation of intentional change. This episode is a discussion with Dr. John Paul Rodriguez. Dr. Rodriguez is the chair of the IUCN Species Survival Commission, co-founder of Provida, whose mission is to develop innovative socio-environmental solutions to conserve nature. He's also a professor at the Center for Ecology at the Venezuelan Institute for Scientific Investigations. He has had a profound impact on the conservation field in Venezuela and elsewhere. We were so privileged to talk with him and hear his inspiring stories. All right, we'll get straight to him. Enjoy. I am a biologist here in Caracas, in Venezuela. I'm a professor of ecology at the Venezuelan Institute for Scientific Investigation. About 30 years ago, a group of fellow students and I founded a, a non-governmental organization called Provita, which is still around and doing very well. And uh, for the last few years, I've been the chair of the UCN Species Survival Commission. That is a network of about 10,500 people in 173 countries, all of them volunteer experts on different species. Okay, so this is where I usually go, okay, wait, well, that, that sounds awesome. What does that mean? <laughs> um, yeah, so you said you're the, the chair of the IUCN Species Survival Commission. Do you mind just kind of giving us a broad overview about what that is? Um, and you, I know you, you kind of mentioned the numbers, which 10,500 people is, is, is a lot. Um, and I didn't know, realize it was all volunteer experts. I think that's really cool. Um, so they want to be there. They're not being said, hey, here's something else you have to do. Um, do you mind just giving us a, a, an overview of what that, what that program is? Sure. So, so what, we, what we aim to do at SSC is provide the scientific evidence that uh, leads to species conservation and to conservation policy. So the, 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 the best known product of the UCM is the UCM Red List of Threatened Species. And this is a an encyclopedia of knowledge, not only on threatened species. I always joke that it's not a list and it's not about threatened species. It really is a compendium of information about all species of plants, animals, and fungi. And uh, that list is constructed primarily, or at least largely, by the experts of the SSC and, the, and all of the specialist groups. 
So these people get together, compile the information that leads to the assessments of species risk of extinction. Now, when I ask the leaders of SSC what they want, you know, what they want from me, what they want from SSC, what they, you know, what, why are they there? They all say to me, I mean, this is really amazing. It's, it's completely uniform. They say to me, we know how to do species assessments. We will continue doing species assessments. We understand that the repeat assessment is very important because it tells you about trends and how things are changing and how our interventions are having effect and all that. So it's important to keep doing this. And then they say to me, but I don't want to be remembered as the person who listed a species. I want to be remembered as the person who saved the species. So that's what this network is. There's a whole bunch of scientists that uh, find in the SSC an outlet for their more applied conservation desires. Many of them are academics, lots in NGOs as well, some in government, but mostly academics. So this is a place where academics get to play conservationists. And they do this by bringing their knowledge, their experience, and turning it into conservation action. And for me, that's what the SSC is. Is there, are there specific projects that are undertaken by the SSC or is it kind of just more of a, uh, an area where everyone kind of comes together and talks about things? Yeah, the groups, are, the groups are very, very independent and autonomous. I do very little to try to impose any kind of micromanagement. I mean, you can imagine 173, 163 groups, sorry, in 173 countries uh, of academics who, <clears throat> who typically are people with a very strong willed and a clear path to where they want to get to. So it's very difficult to, to you know, it's, it's, it's just silly to try to impose an agenda on them. So what I do is to, I, I try to facilitate their work, create opportunities and develop a kind of unified framework for their work. And the, what we have built over the last few years is what we call the species conservation cycle. And what this is, is a cycle that has five elements. The three central ones are assess, plan, act. So we assess, we evaluate the risk through the red list, for example, or some other method of, of a scientific assessment. We plan, so we develop plans that are based on those data to identify their, primary, their priority activities and so on. And then we act to implement those plans and lead to declines and conservation, uh, declines and extinction risk, sorry. So assess, plan, act. The fourth component is the network of SSC that sits at the middle, uh, sits in the middle of the cycle. And the fifth component is communicate. So assess, plan, act, network, communicate. And communicate is just like a blob that we draw around the whole cycle to, to imply that every single person at every single time has to be communicating what they do and engaging with a wider audience. So what we have provided for the SSC is this framework. We have built it with them. It originated from the network and we just developed it uh, for everyone. And what we try to do is to, is to channel funds to fundraise for them to implement it. So we have internal grants that we give the specialist groups to implement their conservation plans built around this cycle. We also have um, some external grants like Nat Geo and Fundacion Segre recently gave us uh, grants to implement SSC action plans. SOS, Save Our Species in IUCN headquarters is also doing something similar, building on SSC action plans. So we always trying to find ways 
we build the kind of the kind of reference conceptual framework, but then we move the network to achieve in that framework. So I always I always joke and I say that I'm I'm the cheerleader of these of these people. I go around making sure that they are happy and achieving their goals. Is as a cheerleader, I guess. Can you give us some uh, examples, uh, maybe of some of your favorite projects that the uh, SSC has been working on? And I know you said you're partial to non-vertebrates or non-charismatic, me you know, megafauna, gorilla, uh, elephants, you know, the things that are cute and cuddly that people generally typ typically love. Yes, uh, the, the main message that I always try to convey and I emphasize with our, with our network is that conservation works. We have lots of evidence that conservation works. We, you, you look at, you know, there are compilations of books of case studies that show that, you know, deliberate human intervention that is done with intelligence and with creativity leads to improvement of species. We've had, you know, cases of of birds, for example, that were down to two individuals, three individuals, in in the Mauritius island, for example, in the in the Indian Ocean and the, the Mauritius Kestrel was down to two birds. The pink pigeon was down to 10. Uh, and you know, if you think of that, if you're a conservationist, you probably think, you know, there's no chance. You know, we have to let them go. We can't do anything about two birds less, but actually they could. They could implement all kinds of intelligent ideas and double clutching of nests and captive breeding and recovering the habitat and introducing food plants, you know, all kinds of different things. They could do controlling exotic predators. And, uh, and the species bounce back. So we have lots of examples like that. And we are always trying to promote them here. In Venezuela, we have a yellow-shouldered parrot we've been working with for almost 30 years. When we started, there were 600 in the wild, now there are 2,000. And it's all been you know, learning how to do it. Uh, the last three years have been our, our best years in, in terms of um, producing parrots. In producing, I mean, we protect nests and then they fly. That's the production that we do. And um, the three last three, three years have been the highest ever. And that's because we learned, you know, we learned over time how to do it. We made lots of mistakes, mistakes, things that we couldn't predict. We employed interventions and techniques that didn't work, but we finally got there. So, you know, after 20 years of experimenting or maybe a little bit less than 20, now we have the last 12 or 13 years of success. And that for me is the key to conservation is, is you know, don't be afraid to fail. Don't, fret, don't be afraid to make mistakes. I always say to the donors and the funders, it is important that you commit to support for a long term. Uh, one year, two years is not enough to learn in many conservation uh, contexts. So those are the kinds of things that we're trying to promote. And, um, you know, one, one, one um, interesting kind of original initiative that is taking place now in the SSC, um, is by the, the Fungi Conservation Committee. They call themselves the FUNCC. And the FUNCC, they are really into bringing fungi into the limelight of conservation. And they have a, a movement now or a, a campaign for the triple F. We call it the fauna, the flora, and the funga. We recognize three different biological realms and kingdoms that are equally important and equally uh, different from each other. So, you know, a, a fungus is as different from a rhinoceros as a rhinoceros is from a tree. They are just different creatures and we don't recognize that. 
So those are the kinds of, of, of themes that I like to promote within the network. These kind of uh, new ideas that uh, break new ground and make us think a bit more. So of course, now I say funga all the time and, and I'm very active in doing that and looking for invertebrates and so on. But the other issue that I want to share with you, if you look at the SSC network, 10,500 people, we have about you know, 400 of those are, we call them the leaders, you know, the leaders of groups and different roles. If you were to pick one randomly, just pluck that person out of their group, it would be a white male in his 60s from the North. And, um, and that's not where biodiversity is. And not only is not where biodiversity is, it is also not where all the ideas about conservation of biodiversity are. It is very important to have local context, local experience. And one, one big, big mission for me in the next four years, I have four more years as chair. If I get reelected in September, but since I'm running uncontested, it is likely that I will be elected. But after election, I have four more years. And my main mission is not going to be so much to to focus on species, but to focus on people that represent those species and making sure that we get, you know, a good balance that is geographic, a good balance taxonomic. We need to get more women. We need to get younger people in. And uh, those are, that, that's my mission for the next, the next uh, quadrennium, we call them here in IUCN. So that um, to make that change and to really capture the voice of biodiversity globally in our network. You just laid out so much, and I'm, I'm actually having a hard time not um, fanboying right now uh, myself because everything that you said, um, you, we have so much alignment with with the organization and what you're saying. Everything from, you know, conservation works, deliberate human interaction done with creativity and intelligence can actually work for conservation, and and the examples that you shared. Um, are exactly why Austin named this organization Pelicanus. It's named after the California brown pelican because in 2009, it was pulled off the endangered species list um, because of deliberate human interaction. Um, and so I'm really grateful that you could bring that up. But because you brought up this whole component that biodiversity representation is commensurate with biodiversity uh, or with diversity of humans, um, and the ideas, and I, I think that's a huge thing that you bring up, not just the representation of the people, but the different ideas that come in from even just geographically, let alone culturally, let alone, you know, from gender or from whatever it is. Um, do you mind touching on that more? Do you mind discussing that more? Because we've heard that from other speakers, and I, I would love to get your, your perspective on that. And how do different perspectives manifest themselves actually practically on the ground? Or how do different perspectives other than the, you know, the academic white male um, actually implement for species conservation? Yeah, for me, one really good example has to do with sustainable use. You know that in, the, in IUCN, uh, we abide by the principles of sustainable use. We have very clear uh, rules about that in the sense that the absolute red line is driving a species extinct, but uh, peoples around the world have the right to use their resources. You know, it doesn't matter what I think in terms of my opinion, whether I'm a vegan or, or not. It doesn't matter, that's irrelevant. Is, you know, people have the right to make their choice about their natural resources. And I have the, the right to make my choice about what I eat, you know, that, that's all fine. Uh, but when you look at 
for example, the wildlife, the, the illegal wildlife trade discussion around the world, it is dominated by the North and it's def therefore dominated on repression and oppression and punishment. It is dominated on enforcement and controlling trade. Um, the message would be very, very different if you listened equally uh, widely to the producers, to the local communities. Um, we have, a, there's an organization called Traffic that uh, is involved in international wildlife trade, many things. And I'm on the board, I'll be stepping down very soon. But they have what they call the red stream and the green stream of the work that they do. The red stream is enforcement and the green stream is sustainable use, is, is uh, encouraging the you know, responsible, well-managed use of wildlife and, and plants and fungi as well. Um, but most of what traffic spends is on the red stream, the vast majority, because the funding agencies, which are mostly from the north, are concerned with that aspect. The problem with that is that the value of wildlife trade to local communities can be very, very high, can be you know, crucial for their own survival. And in many cases, uh, you know, there are lots of examples of truly sustainable uh, use as well, where it doesn't lead to depletion, it rather leads to some cases even to increase of the animals or plants or fungi if you um, if you manage them properly. So that's one, one example, I think, that if we had a balanced representation of the views, our actions of how we deal with trade would be very, very different uh, than what happened, what's happening now, which is basically punish people for wildlife trade. Um, and, you know, highlight, there are lots of bad things about wildlife trade. I mean, don't, don't take me wrong. I don't think that many, many, species that are highly threatened because of illegal wildlife trade. But um, there's a loss of an opportunity, I think, by looking at the picture, at the full picture, and looking at the virtues of the whole chain from the beginning to the end and how we deal with it. And there are examples like that all over the place. I mean, um, you, there, 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 there's a recent report, I don't have the figures with me, but I, I can share it with you. A recent report of, um, I mean, recent two days old or three days old, about the status of biodiversity in indigenous peoples' territories and traditional lands. And uh, there's a lot of evidence that those traditional uses are much more effective than many of the other uses that we're more familiar with. And, um, you know, decentralized governance, there's a lot of things in that, in that model that, that are, are valuable. And yet we continue having the kind of a a police state style of protected areas as being the model in the West. Learning more about how those, I mean, they might not work everywhere, that's possible, but learning more about these alternative models and, and, uh, and accepting that there are different ways to do things could be valuable. I have similar pressures from some groups within the SSC um, that are being questioned for not using indigenous, indigenous and traditional knowledge in, in their assessments or scientific assessments. And there's a clash between those worldviews. So for me, uh, you know, breaking down those barriers and trying to make sure that anybody who has something to say that is useful uh, can do it, um, that's sort of my mission in this context. But really, there are lots of examples of, of, uh, of management practices that are just not in tune with the whole set of op options, of intellectual options. And, and maybe exactly what you said, it may not work everywhere, but that's kind of the point. 
yeah. is thinking that one strategy, one methodology, one way to perceive conservation through fortress conservation or colonial science is going to be the way that's going to work for the entire planet may not be the way that actually works. And so it does take those different lived paradigms, those lived perspectives within uh, the area that the biodiversity is living within. Um, exactly. I love that. Yeah, well, another thing that we have found is that, so when you look at the assess, plan, act cycle that I was speaking about, assessments in the SSC are global. So we look at this risk of extinction of a species globally. That's the normal kind of approach that the specialist groups follow. The planning starts to focus geographically, usually on the, you know, how do you implement action that is effective at different spatial scales? The action is never global. The action is always local. It's national or subnational. So there's a little bit of a disconnect between our scientific view of the status of biodiversity and the conservation action uh, dimension of this work. And that is something that, that we see everywhere. And it's really encouraged us to push um, local action as the key missing piece, especially in the context of what I said earlier of the chairs of the specialist groups wanting to save species. They realize that they don't save species in the planet. They save species where they live or wherever somebody else lives. So bringing, those, bringing that to, to the forefront of our conversation has led us to, to launch a movement that Smithsonian is part of, and we share with others, called Reverse the Red. And Reverse the Red, it's uh, aimed at reversing the declining trends in red lists. Um, the, uh, in addition to the Smithsonian, the lead partners are the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the San Diego Zoo um, on the Edge, uh, conservation and uh, HHA My Tangle Bank Studios. Uh, the, the, this group is the kind of lead, but we have uh, about 20 or, or so partners involved in Reverse the Red at the moment. And the idea is to take all the tools and all the, the what we call them knowledge products of IUCN and uh, apply them at the national level. So use the science-based, evidence-based methods, but bring them down at local level so they can guide conservation policy. So Reverse the Red brings together a, a network that is bigger than the UCN. It has very large partners all over the place to really convince governments and to catalyze processes at the national level and really change the agenda. So that's what we're doing now. And it's, uh, uh, it's really working very well. We're, we're growing slowly, but gaining lots of momentum. Several countries have established their, their hubs at the national level. And with that, we are you know, gradually expanding to, to more and more regions. And that ultimately is our purpose, you know, is to really take all the science and the knowledge and the experience and turn it into information that the public can use, governments can use, and then generate uh, recovery plans and all those things. So you, at the beginning, you kind of mentioned this, this project you've been a part of for a while, uh, Provida. And can, do you mind just kind of breaking down? I, I know there's a few big projects you guys do. Can you kind of break down those projects and how you've implemented them uh, over the years? Yeah, when we started, we started Provita, we were uh, eight university students, undergraduates, I was 19. And we uh, were part of a, of a student organization that focused primarily on, on 
on trips and field trips and ex excursions, expeditions, and um, and we got there a group of us, and we're very we're mostly biology students, and we're very interested in the in doing things for conservation. We really early on uh, clued onto the red list as the kind of product we we saw had value when you took scientific information and synthesized it and translated it for a wider audience. And that led to the first Venezuelan Red Book in, in the Red Book of Fauna in 95. But while we were there at this, at this, at this excursion place, we couldn't find enough traction within the group to do this. They were interested in the excursions and the trips and the traveling. We did lots of wonderful trips, but they didn't want to do any, that was about it. That was their, their passion. So we, we split, we formed a splinter organization and, and that became Provita over time. We had, been, we had learned uh, about organizations. Uh, I was involved with the human rights with Amnesty International uh, early on and they, we learned about their statutes of the Venezuelan office and then we took those statutes and, and transformed them to be a conservation organization. And we registered and became a conservation organization. And, and from the beginning, our, our focus was uh, folk, you know threatened species and ecosystems and and what uh, science-based evidence-based efforts could do for their conservation over time that has evolved we have a new generation of leadership in the organization and really not day-to-day uh, -day involved anymore we have uh, mostly a, a, a well mostly 30 a team of 30 something women who run the show now and um we have uh, three objectives or three big pillars that, that guide our work is, uh, is uh, investigation, research, education, and action are the, three, are the three fields. And then the different projects that we have tend to fall in one of those categories. So they're either research or, or, um, or communication or action. And uh, at the moment, there are a few large initiatives. The, our oldest one is the Yellow Shoulder Parrot Conservation Project on, on Margarita Island here in the Caribbean. Uh, it's focused on, historically it was, you know, a bunch of biologists looking at the population and measuring reproductive biology and different aspects of natural history. Over time, it's become more of a nest protection place and habitat restoration. We, we work a lot with the dry forests on the island. And even more recently, we have moved into the social sciences dimensions that we hadn't really touched before. And that was really, really eye-opening for us because most of the parrot trade that happens on Margarita is domestic, is for people to have parrots at home. In fact, there are more parrots in people's homes on the island than in the wild, about twice as many more. They're very long-lived, so that once they, they come into a home, they live 20, 30 years there. So they, it's very easy for the population to grow and to persist for a long time. Um, but we found that one of the main drivers of, of having parrots is that the principal economic activity of men is fishing. And they go into these big boats, not, not quite industry, you know, not, not like factory boats, but uh, fishing boats that are fairly large and more than a little motor and some oars, you know, a little, a decent, like a yacht style size boat. And, uh, and they go away for months, you know, three months, four months in their fishing expeditions. They sell the fish uh, at sea and then come back with the money, uh, you know, two or three times a year. And when they go, they leave in their place a parrot with a family. 
because they're good companions, because they speak, they keep, they're, they're there, they join the family, they become a member of the family. In fact, the, the young girls call them their sisters. The boys call them Maria. And, uh, and uh, so they're a member of the family. It's, it's much more complicated than having a pet. It is really uh, a, a, a dimension that we hadn't really thought about uh, in these last 30 years. So now that we have the, the kind of field methods under control, we're focusing a lot on this, on, on understanding much better the human dimension of uh, having parrots and what things do we need to do to reduce their, their pressure in the wild. The population has tripled since we have been working there. So it's not, it's not quite, I mean, the threat has diminished, has, has, has declined, no question about that. So it gives us a chance to look at, you know, what are the things we can do that are more holistic in terms of conservation. So that has also led us to other projects on the mainland. We work with a bird-friendly coffee with the Smithsonian as, as well and, and other partners um, producing uh, coffee in habitat that is of the red siskin, which is probably the most threatened bird in Venezuela. And we're working with producers who have a, you know, their, their, their income by selling bird-friendly coffee has gone up like 10 times because it's much more valuable than regular coffee. Uh, and we have a, a established market to take away. They don't produce a lot because they're fairly small, but all of it is sold and is sold at a premium. So they are very happy. With this, uh, with this process. And we're very happy because we have more habitat for the red siskin. Uh, we also uh, have been working for a while on a project of monitoring uh, mining and deforestation in Southern Venezuela using remote sensing. It's a regional project, RISC the, is the acronym. It's a, a project of all the Amazon basin countries together, Provita and Guataneva here in Venezuela are the two partners. So we work a lot with monitoring that as well. We have the red lists of species and ecosystems that we have been working on for, for decades as well. So those are the kinds of things that Provita does. You know, we always driven by, by gathering, we're not really an activist organization. We're very evidence-based science driven and, and trying to influence policy and action through that, through knowledge and, and evidence. And knowledge does not mean natural sciences only, it means all kinds of sources of knowledge. Yeah, we love hearing those stories of Oh, we just did some work for 10 years and now the population's tripled. And you just kind of said it as a, like, oh, it just, you know, you just tripled the population, no big deal. <laughs> it's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, you know, I really, I wanted to go into like, tell me about conservation in Venezuela, but I think you just did. I thought that was, that was perfect. Um, unless you have anything bigger to, to add about, uh, you know, some of the challenges and some of the things you've overcome uh, and bigger yeah. picture. Well, the challenges, the challenges in Venezuela are multiple, like in any place, there are always challenges. And, uh, here, the, the big challenge, I guess, is that conservation is not really a major priority at the national level. We've, we've always had, I mean, for several reasons. One of them is that we have a lot of nature. We really have lots of nature. Uh, the couple of, of extinct species that we have in the country are very narrow endemics that disappeared a long time ago. And uh, there's no, I mean, there are species declining and certainly there are many threats and there, there are many reasons to be worried. But in general, it's a country with a lot of nature. So I think that that's one reason why we don't see conservation as a priority. We also are a mining country. We most of our income comes from mining or very extractive use of natural resources. You know, oil, diamonds, gold, iron, aluminum have been for decades the main source of income 
of the country. So we see nature as a place where we obtain things for our well-being. And I think that's a very well, very widespread sentiment. But at the same time, the kind of contradictory nature of our culture is that if you if you cut down a tree in Caracas, people demonstrate there, there's there's rejection to that action. We appreciate, you know, and there's some very weird things about the city here in that you have mango trees growing in the middle of a paved road and nobody ever dares move that tree. They pave around it. And, uh, and that's a very common sight here. So um, th th there is that kind of contradictory nature of us being an extractive country, but also being used to having nature, but it's not a major priority. So the government is focused a lot more on social and economic issues and um, very comparatively much less emphasis. So all the, all the work that we do here, or, or largely, the most, most of our work is funded internationally from foundations and other donors. So, uh, you know, it works, it works fine, we, we, we do it, but it's not um, really supported nationally. And that's a big challenge. The other big challenge that we have is that um, we in general over the last 20 years or maybe a little bit more, we've had a, a net uh, exodus of, uh, of young talent, of people. We've had maybe five or six million people emigrate recent, you know, in the last few decades. Um, and that has made it hard for us to keep our team um, constant. I mean, we have a lot of turnover. We're always looking for new people and we find them, but it's, uh, it's just uh, difficult. We always have five or six vacancies all the time, people that we need to hire. So that's, um, uh, those are the, the major challenges, I think, that, that we face. But um, also, you know, it, it works. Things keep going and we have a fantastic team, people that are very devoted and dedicated and uh, uh, it tends to be a younger crowd, but that's also good because it's very enthusiastic and idealistic and, and that, that brings many good ingredients with them as well. So, I mean, I, don't, I, I think that anywhere you ask anyone, they will always rapidly find what are the difficulties and the challenges. And perhaps we are maybe more on the challenges side at the moment. <laughs> I mean, we have inflation rates are four or five digits a year and, and uh, virtually no, you know, no value of, of national currency and a salary of a university professor is $10 a, a month. And of course, that's not enough to live from. So, you know, people have, have needed to find creative ways to survive and many have left, but yet, um, you know, you let, yet you go to university and you see young people studying and moving forward and, and having an, an idea for the future and, and working with us. So, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm pathologically optimistic, I realize it's sort of irrational, but, um, but, it, but it, life goes on and there are lots of people willing to make it happen and we are here to help them do that. Pathologically optimistic. Um... I don't think anybody would describe Austin and or I as that, uh, especially starting out. But I think we're finding ourselves becoming more and more so as we search out these stories. And as we talk to people like you, I think it's very, this might be a trigger word, it's very infectious. <laughs> um, and it's funny, I was taking notes as you were writing, and I don't know if you meant to say this intentionally or not, but uh, the way that it came out, you said the nature of our culture is the culture of our nature. 
<laughs> and I just love that mindset because I mean, you know, doing work in New Zealand, uh, there was that same contradiction. It's all invasives. It's all been mowed down. It's all been, uh, it's all plants from Europe and North America and all that. But at the same time, it's the place where they film Lord of the Rings. It's the place yeah. where tourists go to see the green and the blue and the nature. So I don't think that contradict that contradiction is um, is just with you guys. I think it's something that we grapple with as humans. Sure, sure. You mentioned that you're. I like the like the, again. I like like Taylor said. I like the term pathologically optimistic, um, and I guess that that's a great little segue into uh, our reflections <laughs> uh, section of the of the podcast of. So can you, I don't know, we're, again, we're, we're trying to just answer the, we're asking this question as part of the podcast and we're trying to answer it because we don't really know what it means. <laughs> um, can you explore that idea of possibilism or optimism and, and how you kind of incorporate that into your work? Yeah, so when I was in, in university, we I used to go a lot to a national park called Guatopo, which is close here to Caracas. It's a it's a forest, you know, very beautiful kind of wet forest. It's uh, about an hour and a half away and there are jaguars and tapirs. It's, it's amazing that it's so close and so rich and, and I mean, there are five species of, of cats there, wild cats. And um, there's one road that crosses the park and that road had a few bridges and one of the bridges just, I don't know, when it flooded and it, it disappeared. So the road, was interrupted for maybe six months, maybe a little bit more. And uh, the team that we used to usually went there camping went one day, left our car at the, uh, the guard post and then walked across the park, crossed the river that had, um, you know, where the bridge was and kept going. And, you know, it hadn't been three months, maybe four months, maybe five months. And uh, you could not see the road. It was completely covered by vines. You could not see, you know that if you left that six more months, the road would disappear and the forest would have eaten it back up. I have a friend who was walking in Southern Guatemala once and he said to me how he was just amazed by these mountains being so regular and triangular. And of course they're not mountains, they're pyramids under the forest. And that, that just uh, uh, now, you know, three, 200 years later are a forest that you could not discern from a natural forest. So for me, that's the, the, the kind of force that nature has that gives me uh, optimism, is knowing that nature bounces back. It's not just that conservation works, it's that nature bounces back. And, and all we're doing is facilitating the natural recovery. You can see it in the sea with the fishery exclusion zones, how within a year you have a double or tripling of fishing of production at the edge of the fishery exclusion zones. I mean, there's so many examples that you let nature come back. I mean, the whole, all the discoveries that are taking place now about the Amazon and how there used to be cities of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people there that they just didn't build with concrete, but you can detect the patterns of the, you know, irrigation or whatever from the, from, from, from satellites. So it, nature bounces back. And for me, that's the key thing is that our role, you know, I, I always say that, well, I don't always say it, but I'm starting to think that we will be the generation that sees nature come back. We are the generation that's going to be the witness of that because nature is there, is ready, and we are aware and we're moving in that direction. So in the, in the same way that when I used to be a kid and I went fishing 
in the instant I would put a hook on the water, I would catch something instantaneously. Now that's not the case. But I, I know I will be the generation that 20 years from now, I think I'll be alive. Yeah, 30 years from now, I'll be alive still. Um, we will see that change. So, so, you know, it's a great moment to be in because I saw the past, I saw the nature, the, the kind of exuberant nature. I've seen it decline, but I'm going to see it come back. And that's because nature can do it. Yeah, no, for me, that's the, the kind of, I, mean, I guess, I mean, I, I really feel that my, um, my kind of attitude, the optimistic attitude is something that I was born with. I, I don't think that I learned that. I certainly, I have to recognize that. Uh, but I think you can teach it and, uh, and make other people uh, feel that way. I mean, I remember when I was a, a kid, maybe I was, I don't know, in fourth grade or something like that. And I started playing football, soccer in a, in a team. And my first game, uh, I'm sitting there on the bench, of course, I never, I didn't play it for a few months, but uh, we were losing like 9-0 and, and my team scored. And I went to the coach and said, you know, okay, only eight to go. And the guy almost killed me, you know, for being so, so absolutely, he was like terrified and hated the whole situation. And I was trying to, to turn it into a, you know, something that was, so I can see that, that uh, you know, the origin is old in, in, in the way that I do things. But, um, but I have learned that people are interested in that message too and, um, and pick it up and go with it. So we just have to make sure that more of them know that. So with, with all that said, I think one of the last things I, I want to, I mean, I'm just interested in is how, so you mentioned uh, you, you essentially started ProVita when you were like 18, 19 years old. Uh, that's not normal. <laughs> um, but how did you discover your love of biology uh, so young? What, what was it that meant, kind of got you into it? Yeah. So my father was a, he was a Basque from Northern Spain. And uh, he came to Venezuela. He, his family were refugees from the, from the Spanish Civil War, and my father was in jail with Franco, you know, the whole story. And then they arrived here, and he, I think, was a naturalist at heart, but he became an economist for, uh, well, he had to sustain his family. So he went for a career that was productive, but he was a naturalist. And he, my mother, my sister, and I, since we were, I don't know, since I can remember, we were camping and fishing here around the coast of the Caribbean uh, every weekend. So I, I think I had a machete in one hand and a fishing reel in the other at the age of five or six. And we, I would go by myself uh, in this really vast coastline without any people, just fishing and I would be in charge of the fire. So I would do the fire every evening and then we just hang out there every weekend for, for many years until my dad died when I was 11. But you know, for seven or eight years, that's what we did every, every all the time. And uh, then I, I discovered Jacques Cousteau a little bit later on and really became fascinated by that. And then I went to university to study biology and um, really early on, uh, met Franklin Rojas Suarez, who's the other co-founder of Provita. And I think it was sort of a Lennon-McCartney kind of a um, friendship where we, we really clicked and uh, together we were much better than individually in terms of all the things that we did we had different interests. We gravitated towards nature and conservation. We both had this kind, we both had joined Amnesty International together and had this kind of a, 
really good connection, very intellectual. Uh, and we, I mean, there was eight of us who found the Provita, but certainly Franklin and I were, are the ones that stuck to it for longer and have kept going. It's hard to tell if it's, you know, luck or work or both. You know what, I, I can totally see me going in a completely different path, uh, equally likely, uh, but that's the way it happened, so. I'm very curious about what's next. So you had mentioned that in your next term, uh, you're gonna focus on people in the next four years. I, do you mind telling us more about that? Telling us what's next in your career, what's next in your big projects, what's next in your mind, your creativity, how can you become more you? Um, and what kind, what will that look like um, for John Paul? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, I think there are very simple things that I can do within the SSC to improve the, the people's side of things. Uh, to really be determined um, to diversify our members and our leaders, uh, exp you know, just be explicit about it. I mean, so far I have uh, not really made a, I wouldn't say a terribly, so for example, I can, you know, it is in my hands who I appoint for the steering committee of SSC. So I can say, you know, it's going to be 50% under 30 or whatever. I mean, I can, I, can, I have the capacity to make that uh, those decisions, and, and and I'm planning to. I'm planning to maybe not that dramatic as 50% under 30, but uh, certainly uh, set some some goals. And not it's not a matter of quotas. It's a matter of forcing me to look. Is forcing me to <clears throat> go beyond the one degree of separation that we usually use. I usually ask somebody, do you know anyone who's good that has these characteristics? And they'll say yes or no. But uh, I have to look more, and I'm sure those people exist. When I ask, you know, get me a, a dragonfly expert from Senegal, if somebody says to me they don't exist, they're lying. Of course they exist. They just don't know about them and we have to look for them. So that's one thing that I, I, I really plan to do. But the bigger picture, you know, what comes after IUCN for me uh, as a conservation professional is a good question. I, um, I don't imagine myself living anywhere else than here, than Venezuela. So whatever I find has to be something that works here. I have uh, definitely a good institutional setting around me with Provita and, and Evic, the Institute. Um, you know, I have a place where I can, I can work from, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. But I certainly have a, um, an ambition for the work that we do being more global or more regional or more influential in other parts. So I hope that I'm able to combine being here with uh, continuing to play in the kind of global conservation arena in some way. Uh, could be connected to other organizations, could be on my own. It's not, it's not um, I don't have any particular plan in that sense, but I certainly would like, you know, uh, I can also imagine, um, you know, being more involved in, in, the, in, in conservation politics nationally, uh, uh, engaging more closely with National Parks Institute or Ministry of the Environment. Those are people that I know well, that I work with. Uh, I just don't have time to do any of that stuff. So I can, you know, if I could influence more the way conservation is done in Venezuela, I would love to do that as well, or even regionally. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I, I want to take all this, all these years of, of experience and exposure to turn it into something that allows me to continue doing it more hands-on probably than, than before.
Dr. Ro Dr. Rodriguez or John Paul, uh, thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, you know, we're, it sounds cheesy, but we're truly inspired by the, the work you, you've done, your work you're doing, the decades of work. Um, it's, it's just amazing. Uh, and I, we're at a loss of words for how to describe it. Um, but if you don't mind, can you uh, tell our listeners, viewers, uh, where they can find you, uh, your organizations, and if they're so inclined, how can they find ways to help you and your organizations? Well, I think, you know, when people say, what do I do? My answer always is do something, you know, anything. Pick, pick one thing, pick one cause, one mission. It doesn't matter. It can be plastic. It could be garbage. It could be wildlife health. It could be human health. It could be orphan children, you know, atmospheric pollution, whatever it is, you know, whatever theme that you that you can influence that makes the world a better place, do something, anything. And that makes a huge difference. And our organizations, uh, of course, benefit from any kind of support or any interest from anyone. And I urge you to contact us. I mean, uh, uh, Provita is our, our, all of our social media are Provita underscore ONG, which is NGO in Spanish. So Provita underscore ONG, uh, IUCN uh, at IUCN SSC. Uh, it's the, the handle of, of IUCN. And, uh, you know, my, my personal one is, is John Parrod. Those are my uh, Twitter and, and Instagram accounts. And, um, you know, get in contact, get in touch and do something, anything. I think that, that uh, there's no better cause than other. Uh, you know, we just have to make sure that in our existence on earth, we do something to make uh, earth a better place and make somebody's life better. So it's not hard to do. We can all do it with simple things. You know, organize a recycling uh, effort in your home or your building or in your street. Anything, anything that we can do is much better than, than being passive. We want to say thank you again to Dr. Rodriguez for talking with us. Check him and his projects out on social media at IUCNSSC, at Provida underscore ONG, and at John Parrod. And find the websites at IUCN.org and Provida.org.be. Producers on this episode are Andrea Santi, Kat Coots, Austin Parker, and Taylor Parker. Music for this episode was provided by a Picture Book Studios. Don't forget to check out Pelicanus.org for all of our episodes. You can find us on social media at Pelicanus Inc., and also check out the Smithsonian's Earth Optimism Initiative at conservationcommons.si.edu or at Earth Optimism on social media. Remember, if you want to support us, we are a tax-exempt organization, or you can just like, comment, and subscribe and help us that way. Thank you for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time.